Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, you hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not alone. Time for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, it's a city. For 31 bucks. Lots of it, Rose. What's the problem? Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams' hands for a coffee table and just, and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, whose, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And there's no Cambo this week, unfortunately. I know, I miss him already. But in spite of that, we're going to do some bloody murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, Tara, I'm going to talk about Dennis Bagwell, a cocaine-addicted rage monster with a violent past who lost his shit when his mum would only give him $20 for drugs. Wow, that's more than most people's mums would give them. (laughs) I guess. Yeah. What about you, Tara? This week I looked into Pierre Besson. He was South Africa's first documented serial killer. So not necessarily the first, but the first one on paper. Mm. He was described by police as a scoundrel from infancy due to his violence towards animals, but he later graduated to murdering innocent people for insurance money. Oh, scurrilous. Yeah. Oh, devious, cunning and evil. And diabolical. Oh, very diabolical. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, generous, amazing, sexy, artistic and beautiful-footed patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Should we get murdery? Okay, let's get murdery. Pierre Besson was born in South Africa in 1880. He was the oldest of four children and had two younger brothers and a younger sister. He was average looking, of average height and build, but what went on inside his head was a different matter. That wasn't average? No, I'm I'm, glad it's not average. I hope it's going to be sick. It's going to be sick, but not as in awesome sick, as in like make you want to puke sick. Yeah, sorry, vomit, sorry, vomit, that's the Australian way. 
From a very young age, he was drawn to violence and found enjoyment doing highly disturbing things. He attacked a boy with a knife when he was only 12 years old and derived pleasure in causing pain to animals. Oh, I hate this sentence. That's mm. that's the number one thing on the McDonald triad, isn't it? After bedwetting and... Fire starting. Fire starting. Yeah, that's yeah. the three mm. shit show ingredients. He liked to catch birds and torture them to death. He also chopped the feet off cats so he could watch them whimper in agony while trying to walk. I'm sorry, listeners. He That's vile. Yeah, look, the complete lack of empathy that he showed and just the fact that he had no remorse is one of the hallmark traits of a sociopath. It means that they're capable of doing anything and then they act as if nothing had happened because for them emotionally, well, nothing what, did. It doesn't affect them, yeah, that's right. Ooh... In his teens in Cape Town, Basson debuted his criminal career as a petty thief, much to the dismay of his honest, hard-working parents. When Basson was 18, his father died unexpectedly after a short illness. The whole family were devastated, except Basson, who didn't appear to give a shit. Yeah. It's so just like, oh, this is kind of like torturing a bird to death or cutting feet off cats. Mm, just another day. It being 1888, after the death of his father, Basson was now considered the head of the household. This gave him the power and money to enter a new and more lucrative field of criminal enterprise, insurance fraud. Basson's get-rich scheme involved lending money, for which he charged the normal rate of interest, but he also insisted that the lender take out a life insurance policy to cover the unexpected. Well, I guess that's pretty normal for life insurance. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, he was named the beneficiary of these life insurance policies. And at the time, this wasn't particularly unusual about yeah. the loan business. I mean, it was kind of standard practice. The big difference in this case was that Basson planned to make sure he collected the insurance money. Oh. Well, it's normally just the uh, money to pay back the loan, but... Oh, no, extra. he would get them insured for, like, at least 10 times more. Oh, and he'd be the beneficiary, obviously. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, otherwise. Oh. What's the point? <laughs> well, yeah, a guy like this isn't really giving to charity, is he? No, he's not. His first foray into this business started very close to home. They say charity begins at home, but also fuckery does too. Yeah, murder. Mm. In 1901, he took out life insurance policies for himself, his mother, and his brothers, Johan and Jasper. His youngest brother, Jasper, was insured for £3,500, which was a rich bounty at the time. Basson explained that this was actually advantageous to Jasper, as in later years he'd be able to borrow against the accumulated sum in the policy, you know, assuming he had some later years. Yeah, I don't think that's real too, but anyway. Well, mm, I think that you can, but it's, it's not like it's going to come to fruition, is it? No. Within months of taking out these family insurance policies, Basson let them all lapse, except for Jasper's. I guess Jasper was his least favourite relative. Well, he didn't like his... Was he his little brother? Yeah, his youngest brother. He's probably smarter and better looking than him. You know what? Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. In February 1903, Basson convinced 17-year-old Jasper to go fishing with him at Gordon's Bay. Basson went down a day before his brother to find a good spot and stayed at the Holloway Hotel. The hotel's owner, Mr Holloway, would later recall that Basson had been very interested in inquiring about drowning incidents in the area 
for some reason. Where's the best place to drown, drown my, my little least, brother? My least favorite brother. <laughs> well, Holloway warned him about a particularly notorious spot called Sewing Room Rock, where there was a vicious undercurrent which had caused many people to drown and vanish without a trace. Sewing people? No, people don't generally sew on rocks in the That's middle of... That's an odd name for a rock. Maybe it looked a bit like a sewing machine. Like, I don't fucking know. I wasn't there. Really? Research, Tara. I know. If only I'd done some instead of just making up these whole six pages. Well, when was this? 1900? I guess the internet wasn't around then. No, it wasn't a whole lot. It was 1901, though. 1901. So, yeah, you know, there you go. a little bit more advanced. Yeah. Jasper arrived at Gordon's Bay late on the afternoon of Friday, February 13th, 1903. Don't go fishing with your evil brother on Friday the 13th, Jasper! It's okay, he didn't. I mean, it's not okay, but he didn't go fishing on Friday the 13th. No? No. The brothers left the hotel to go fishing before the sun came up the next morning. So, Valentine's Day. At February about 20th, June 29th. February 14th. Well done, Barney. <laughs> At about 6.45am, two other early morning fishermen, Mr. Dadier and Dr. Ford, bumped into Basson, who was walking back towards the hotel alone. He had two fishing rods over his shoulder. Any fish? No. No fish? A lot of fishy behaviour, but no fish. Oh, Oh, burn me. Burn me now. I'm a witch that does bad puns. (laughs) Or just throw a bucket of water on me. That would melt me. Really? Bucket of vodka you'd prefer. Oh, I would definitely. And maybe a straw or two. So when he saw the fisherman, Basson went, There's been a great accident. My brother Jasper's been drowned. He was cutting bait when a tremendous wave swept him off the rocks. I heard him give a cry for help, but another wave washed over me and threw me into a gully. I spotted him once face downwards in the water, and then he vanished from view and he didn't come up again. Mr. Dadia and Dr. Ford looked at each other quizzically. Besson's calm demeanour struck the men as being very suspicious. They would have expected someone who'd just witnessed a family member drown to show signs of distress or grief, but Basson was totally chill about it. He was cool with it. Meh, little brother just died, eh? Yeah. And his account of the accident was even more sus. If the second wave that he said had stopped him from going to his brother's rescue had driven him into a gully between the rocks, how was it that only one of Basson's pant legs was wet? Was he wearing magic, mostly waterproof pants? And if so, where could they get some? Seriffic <laughs> in half, half-wit pants. Half-wit pants? Half-wit pants. <laughs> I'm wearing those that was, now. That was my South African accent. That's pretty yeah. Stick oh. your fucking prawns, eh? You redeemed yourself. Not. Also, saying not after something is pretty yeah. dated. Yeah. Not. Uh- not. <laughs> a search party was organised. Ain't no party like a search party. And Basson and several local fishermen rowed a boat out along the coast. When they reached Sewing Room Rock, Basson pointed to the spot where he claimed Jasper had disappeared, but there was no sign of his body nearby. An extensive search was conducted, but Jasper was never seen again. Yeah. <laughs> I got itchy. As soon as he got back home to Cape Town, Basson notified the insurance company of his brother's death, expecting them to make it rain. Did they? 
No, the insurance company launched a formal inquiry into the case and found out that Basson had attempted to get Mr. Cruz, the barman at the Holloway Hotel, to make a false statement concerning the sequence of events on the morning of Jasper's death. Oh, that sounds kind of sloppy. Yeah, they didn't catch any fish, but boy, is this fishy. Mm. Another shit joke. I can smell that from here. Well, we did go to the Ugly Tuna Saluna earlier. Maybe (laughs) it's just still on your clothes. Cruz had agreed to sign an affidavit to confirm Basson's description of what had happened. But when Basson later rocked up with a justice of the peace, Cruz found that his account of the incident bore so little resemblance to the truth that despite a £25 bribe, he refused to sign on to it. Oh, fair enough too. Yeah, good work, Cruz. After completing their investigation, the insurance company refused to pay out, saying there was insufficient evidence of Jasper's death by violent, accidental, external and visible means. So basically, they were pretty much working under the assumption that Jasper had faked his death for the insurance money and they were accusing the Basson family of fraud. So no body, no Momo. In a way, yes. Yeah, and they, so they were saying he's not dead. Yeah. Yeah, mm. well, also the fact that, like, Basson had been there going, where's a good place to drown my brother? Like, they kind of just thought it was all a ruse. Yeah. Outraged at his plan being foiled, Basson insisted that his grieving mother take the insurance company to court. Ooh, what happened? Well, the case ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court and judgment was pronounced in Basson's favour. With the insurance payout, the Basson family bought a house in Claremont, Cape Town. Oh, nice. So they ended up winning that one. And, of course, his family had no idea that he'd actually killed his brother. They thought Mm. it was a tragic accident. Yeah, right. The eventual success with the insurance company inspired Basson to repeat his scheme a number of times. One man who'd relinquished his life insurance policy worth £375 to Basson was found dead on Woodstock Beach in Cape Town. There was some evidence that he'd been strangled, but the official cause of death was actually listed as drowning. Another of Basson's clients drowned while the two of them were out sailing together. Oh, how romantic. Yeah, not no, when n- it ends in not, death. Not so much? No. He's also believed to have been responsible for the death of a man named Adolf Beck, another of his lone customers, whose body was found floating in the Black River. You know what, Barney? Like, you'd think with so much bad luck happening around water, Basson would have moved to the desert, but no. No? No, he just kept staying near the water. No, he's certainly got an MO, hasn't he? Yeah, it's almost like the water is his accomplice. Hmm. I've always hated water. No, you haven't. Well, you hate drinking water, I know that. Oh, yeah. No, there's water in beer. Yeah, oh, God, he does that. He does that. He'll take a, he'll be like, take this vitamin or, you know, cyanide tablet. No, use water. There's water in beer, Tara. There is. I guess that's it. why the cyanide hasn't worked. He doesn't have enough fluid to activate it. Hey, hang it. on a second. Are you trying to kill me? No. A German couple, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, who were acquaintances of Basson, were robbed and shot shortly after acquiring a loan from him. With, so, with water bullets? Yeah, with water, with ice bullets, with an ice gun. <laughs> oh, yeah, because then they melt and the, and the evidence is gone. Completely. Ooh, perfect crime. Um, so anyway, he, he finally seemed to have branched out from his wet and wild murder technique. He thinks he's a genius, 
but he isn't. These scams had failed to be noticed by insurance assessors or police, and Basson wasn't a suspect in any of these cases until much later. Okay, maybe he is a genius. I don't even know He's anymore. a slippery bastard, probably because he's wet. <laughs> he's always wet. He's a very moist and terrible man. Oh, you just wanted to say moist, didn't you? Uh, in this case, yes. Usually, no. Towards the end of 1905, he met a German farmer named Wilhelm Schaefer. This meeting would have terrible consequences for Wilhelm. Ah, Wilhelm. 54-year-old Wilhelm and his brother Gottlieb owned a farm which was located about 25 kilometres from Claremont. I like the name Gottlieb. I'm thinking dog name. Yeah, a little pug or something. The Schaefers were thrifty and hardworking men, which gave them very little in common with Basson. But they both like Coldplay, right? Oh, God, I hope not. When Basson learned that Wilhelm... <laughs> everyone loves Coldplay. Everyone used to love Coldplay. Then everyone hated Coldplay. I, I almost feel bad for Coldplay. I don't. <laughs> um, when Basson learned that Wilhelm was interested in selling the farm, he came up with a diabolical scheme to swindle him out of the property. Did it involve water? No. Oh, he's moved on from water. Yeah, look, probably maybe his first sketches were all about the ocean, but I don't think Wilhelm was about to go boating with him, if you know yeah, what I yeah, mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. In December 1905, Basson went to see Wilhelm and made an offer to buy the farm. Wilhelm initially wanted £1,400, but after some hard bargaining, the two men agreed on a price of £1,020. Well, that's a good price for a farm in South Africa in 1901. Well, I, I, I do respect your uh, incredible knowledge about property prices in South Africa <laughs> in the early 1900s, so I will not argue with that yeah. point. Wilhelm explained that once full payment for the property had been made, legal transfer of ownership to Basson would take place. To formalise the agreement, the two men visited Wilhelm's Cape Town attorney, Hermann Hirschberg, also a good name for a dog. Yeah. A sausage dog. What is your sausage dog's name, Tara? His name is Herman Hirschberg, and he is an attorney at law. <laughs> yeah, so don't fuck with me. Yeah, and no. I'll finally have a lawyer. <laughs> Wilhelm made one important provision at this point in the transaction. He said that the transfer was not to take place unless he was physically present, as he got a sense Basson was not a stand-up guy, and he didn't want the deed of transfer passed to him without proof of payment. Well, that makes sense, really. Yeah, it's just good business sense. Yeah, it's probably just the way things were done then, too. Well, it's the way they should have been done, and Wilhelm was a very smart businessman. Hmm, good on you, Wilhelm. A few days after the meeting, Basson dropped by Hirschberg's office and tried to get him to transfer the property into his name. Hirschberg refused, which wasn't ideal for Basson, but he went about thinking of other ways to outsmart the attorney. Ah, oh, the Devious little bastard, isn't I know, he? he's one of those horrible sociopathic little piss ants who thinks that he's always the smartest guy in the room. It sounds like he, he likes to intimidate people too. And to, he's it, a bully. It, he's a bully. He thinks oh. he's a genius. These guys always come undone though, so don't you worry. Good. A week later, Basson visited Hertzberg's office yet again. This time he announced that he had paid Wilhelm for the farm and again asked for the attorney to transfer the property into his name. Uh, what did Hertzberg say? Well, since Basson didn't have a receipt or any other proof of payment, Hertzberg said, Hell no! Hell no! Early in January 1906, Basson darkened the doorstep of Hirschberg's office yet again. Oh, for fuck's sake. I know. This time he had forged a receipt for £1,020 for the property. 
Although Hirschberg was unaware that the receipt was fake, he did explain that he would have to contact Wilhelm before the final transfer could be made. Besson, of course, objected to this, saying Wilhelm didn't want to be contacted and he couldn't be reached anyway as he'd gone to Kimberley on the Northern Cape and had taken a vow of silence or, you know, some kind of bullshit story like oh, that. Wow, that's a likely story, isn't it? Ugh, seriously, yeah, don't lie on. to a lawyer. They know how to deal. Yeah. Hirschberg stood his ground and refused to transfer ownership of the farm, even though he must have wanted to just get the relentless his hand out of his office for good. Oh. In, out of his kennel, because he's a sausage dog, right? Yeah, who's also my attorney. <laughs> I call him Hirschberg. Hirschberg, sausage dog, attorney at law. I'd watch that. <laughs> I would pat him and love him and give him some treats. I would watch that show. Make that show, please. Okay, sure. No worries. I've just got to get me a, a sausage dog who's got a law degree. Well, an actor, he doesn't have to have a law degree. He can be that's what actors do, they act. I'd rather a dog with a law degree. Oh, well, yeah, or at least one willing to go to law school. Well, there are plenty of actor dogs I could that probably probably could do it. You know, you, there's not that many law, law degree. <laughs> <laughs> are we really going to spend this much time on this tangent? No, we're not. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> there would be more there would be more actor dogs than there are lawyer dogs that's all i'm trying to say well i have not done research on this and so i cannot believe your statistics without some evidence sir well i will i will research that by this time hirschberg's suspicions were fully aroused but his trouser snake remained dormant <laughs> he told Besson he was incredibly fucking over the whole thing and refused to proceed without speaking to Wilhelm. Now, look, for fuck's sake, this, this sausage dog lawyer dude is really on it, isn't he? He's reached the end of his sausage dog lawyer tether and he just wants this pissant out of his office. Yeah, and he probably wants a treat. Yeah, well, anyway, he would love a treat. Oh, uh, Besson had a sook and stormed off, slamming the door on his way out. Ah, the old storm off, eh? Oh, yeah, who doesn't respect that? Yeah. This incident had made it painfully clear to Besson that his carefully planned fiendish scheme to rip off Wilhelm was turning into a train wreck. That's why you don't mess with sausage dog lawyers, because they are amazing. Oh, yeah, the- relentless <sighs> and long. Mm, so long. Their, their body length is representative of the patience they have as well. Yeah, and don't be uh, don't overestimate their, their low stature and height. Mm-mm, they make up for it in... Length. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so Wilhelm did what anyone is in his position at this point would do, right? He decided to murder Wilhelm, hide his body, and forge his signature on the relevant documents. Wow. Oh, just like everyone else. I was going to say, get your own sausage dog lawyer. Oh, shit, yeah. That would have been a better idea. But he, he went down the murder path. Well, that's fine. Uh, that's that's usually what we talk about on this podcast. I know. Well, he probably was like, uh. oh, there are no lawyer sausage dogs. There's more actor sausage dogs. Guess I'm going to have to commit a murder. See, I told you. No, just because Wilhelm believes it doesn't mean it's true. I mean, come on. As soon as he returned home, Basson sent his gardener to fetch a labourer named Christian from a nearby brickyard. Basson set Christian to digging a large pit in the chicken run in the backyard. Now, considering Basson's history of violence towards animals, the chickens must have been super nervous to have this prick mm. hanging around. Oh, I can do a nervous chicken. My gun's going to kill me, Bukak. <laughs> Get this gun out of here. I like my feet, Bukak. 
<laughs> wow, that was really different from my interpretation of it. But yeah, let's 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 run with that. Okay, I have a sausage dog lawyer, and my chickens are very eloquent. This is two things that you should know about me by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd think I'd know that. I mean, come on, it's kind of like memorable. The son told his mummy that the pit was being dug for pipes which were to be laid to improve the drainage system. Sneaky fucking pipes, eh, for me chicken cup and me chicken coop, eh? He explained that since he had not been granted permission for the plans from the local council, the work had to be conducted in secret. Shh, mum. Sneaky fucking pipes, eh? Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to stall with I'm my... getting my sausage dog onto you. I, by the way, I love the South African accent. I really... I really enjoy it. He does, it. it's true. I really enjoy it and I hope I'm not making fun of South African people because I re- actually really enjoy your Oh, accent. my God. We got some shit recently about like making fun of Americans. We make fun of everything, mostly ourselves in our own country. So I think we're a little sensitive now. Yeah. Like, if we say anything about anyone, yeah. we're going to get like a, a ragey review that's like, I hope you keep out of my country and stay in yours. We don't care what country you come from. We love <laughs> nice people. And we give fuckers shit. And we give fuckers shit. Mm, it's- whatevs. Yeah. So a week later, the large pit was complete. So Basson did a John Wayne Gacy and bought himself some bags of lime, which he stored inside the chicken coop. And they're like, hell no, what's he doing with that shit? <laughs> Tara. Well, they, so he bought the lime so that, and he put the coconuts next no, to it. No, there weren't any coconuts. To put the lime into? Well, I mean, you should put, you put the, the lime in the, in the coconut. coconut and drink it all down. But he, he didn't because he no. doesn't do what he should. Right. Mm. Damn. The next step in his evil scheme was to get his hands on some chloroform to subdue his victim. Now, this being the early 1900s, he was evil. Evil? Yep. Is that a word? No. Evil? You're evil. He was easily able. It's a combination of easily and able. Oh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> he was easily able to use a false name to purchase it from a pharmacist. Well, couldn't you just get it? You could just... Get it at your milk bar, couldn't you? I don't know, man, but these good deli? old days. I mean, come on. I could really go some laudanum right about now. Oh, yeah, that's got all the good things in yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I could use a fake name. Hi, I'm Barney Black. Farts, farts, farts. Give me my laudanum. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm wearing jorts and culottes. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, my hey, God. Baby. You will keep. <laughs> Did you enjoy my Barney impression? Yeah. I don't think he did. Diva Zilla is what you are. I'm a babezilla, fuck you. Oh, I thought it was divazilla. I think it's cuntzilla at this point. <laughs> the son invited Wilhelm to come to his house in Claremont to finalise their property deal and, I don't know, play PlayStation or some shit. Oh, yeah, right. Basson seemed to consider himself a criminal mastermind and assumed that every idea he had was genius, but if he'd been a tiny bit more self-aware, he may have realised that his plan was sloppy as shit in a bucket. On January 21st, 1906, Wilhelm Schaefer set out by horse and cart for Basson's place. On the way, he stopped at Herbert Hawkins' blacksmith's shop and asked Hawkins to shoe his horses and make some minor repairs to his carriage, including maybe a personalised number plate. Wilhelm rocks! Oh, R-O-X. Yeah. Yeah, sweet. He told the blacksmith... I'll be back in one or two hours after I've collected the money for my farm from Pierre Besson. He then set off for the Besson residence on foot. When Wilhelm arrived at the property, he was met by Besson and a friend of his named Tobias Lau. The three men went into Besson's room together to play PlayStation. A land party, man. Sweet. Yeah. 
But Wilhelm was never seen alive again. While in his room, the two men plied Wilhelm with drink and lulled him into a false sense of safety with lighthearted conversation before overpowering him with chloroform and strangling him to death with a cord. Yeah, I was about to say, I've had parties like that, but n- not with the strangling It didn't end the same. It was yeah. kind of fun. This isn't. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the big difference, right? It really is. Yeah, it's quite an important difference. They kept his body hidden inside Basson's room until nightfall. Then, after everyone else had gone to bed, Basson and Lau stripped William's clothes off before carrying his body out into the yard and across to the large pit near the chicken coop. A local cleaner named Catherine Mochella happened to be passing by the yard just as the two men set to work burying Wilhelm's body. She heard strange noises, saw the light they were using, and assuming that someone was in the process of stealing Basson's chickens, carefully crept up to investigate. Well, she's actually a really good neighbour. Through a gap in the fence, she saw the body of a man being clumsily thrown into a large hole in the ground. Give me the lime, she heard Basson say to his accomplice. And where are the coconuts? (laughs) And when do we drink them all down? Freaked out by what she'd seen, Catherine crept away and went home. She didn't inform the police of what she'd seen at the time because she did not trust the popo and was scared that they'd throw her in prison for nothing. She was Bantu and considering the racial issues in South Africa, it Mm, was maybe something she wanted to stay the hell out of. I noticed how you said clumsily dropped his body into the hole. They were probably drunk too, weren't they? I hope so. Uh. Gives me something in common with this prick. On the other side of Claremont, Hawkins the blacksmith was confused because Wilhelm had not returned to collect his horses and cart. And his sweet-ass personalised number number plate. plate. Wilhelm rocks! (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I think your delivery was shit, but it's still funny. (laughs) The next morning, he rode into Claremont and spoke to the police before going to Basson's house, as that's where Wilhelm had told him that he was headed. When he inquired about Wilhelm's whereabouts, Mrs. Basson told him that she thought he'd left for Kimberley the previous afternoon. Well, who's going to play for these fucking number plates, eh? Well, I don't know. I feel that anyone would like them. They're very good number plates. I feel like Mrs. Basson was kind of accommodating, you know? Yeah. This all sounded very fishy to Hawkins, but he didn't have proof of anything untoward happening, so he went back to his shop. Well, fair enough. Shortly after Hawkins returned to work, Basson rocked up, explaining that he was there to pick up Wilhelm's horse and cart and sweet-ass personalised number plates. He produced a receipt for £1,020, apparently signed by Wilhelm, claiming that Basson now owned all of his property. But it wasn't his signature, was it? Because he does little hearts above his eye. Yeah, well, when he's alive, he does. Yeah. Uh, Basson then paid for the work that Hawkins had done on Wilhelm's rig. And the number plates? Oh, yeah, he was like, give me more, but I want them to go, <laughs> Basson is hot. What seemed the most sus to Hawkins was that the receipt was dated January 11th, but Wilhelm had said on January 21st that he was in town to receive payment for the farm that day. It didn't add up that a business-savvy guy like Wilhelm would issue a receipt for his property without receiving the payment first. Yeah, of course. That is so not Wilhelm. It's not Wilhelm. Mm. 
Within days of Wilhelm's disappearance, Besson moved to his farm and began going through all of his stuff. Gottlieb, Wilhelm's brother, vehemently protested this invasion of privacy, but Besson held the receipt in his face and calmly stated that he had bought the farm lock, stock and barrel. Well, you know what uh, Gottlieb should have done. He should have got that uh, sausage dog lawyer onto this. Ah, he totally should have, but he didn't know him. Oh. He could have maybe put his own dog through law school, but that would have taken ages. Oh, well, at least four years. I know. It's okay. Like, he figured some stuff out. In an uncharacteristically nice gesture, he agreed to let Gottlieb stay on the farm until he found somewhere else to live. Get out of there, Gottlieb, while you still can. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Those who were close to Wilhelm found his sudden disappearance to be very out of character. Concerned for his safety, they went to the police and implored them to investigate the matter. But without a body or any hard evidence, there really wasn't much that they could do. Unable to get satisfaction from the authorities, Wilhelm's family did what a lot of people in this situation do. They went to the press. Good work. Yeah, like yeah. sometimes they have to to get attention to the case. Mm. An article in a paper called The Argus on February 7th read, Cape Flats Mystery, Murder Theory Favoured. Use PlayStation for sale. Two days later, the police offered a £50 reward to anyone who could offer information that would help resolve the mystery of Willem Schaefer's disappearance. Whenever I say Schaefer and disappearance, I think about Comeback Podcast and Brian Schaefer, don't you? The ugly tuna saluna. That's the one. That's what you call your bits, right? That's what you call my bits, Barney. Let's make that distinction. The missing man was described as German, age 54, unmarried, height 5 feet 7 inches, medium build, broad shoulders, stoops when walking, light brown cast in one eye. Sick PlayStation player, has personalised number plates. Amazing personalised number plates. Just a sweet ass dude. Yeah. For three weeks, there was no development in the case at all. Feeling guilty about what she'd seen on the night of February 21st, cleaner Caroline Machella sent an anonymous note to the head of the police force telling them to dig for Wilhelm's body in Basson's chicken coop. It's in here. She scanned local newspapers for news of the body being discovered, but nothing happened, so she wrote a second letter. On February 10th, an interview with Basson appeared in the Argus in which he denied any knowledge of Wilhelm's disappearance. He said he had agreed to the interview because of the stories that were circulating and the garbled and unfair stuff published in some papers. Ah, slanderous. Oh, you mean all of the true stuff they published? Yeah. Dude. The same day, the police received Caroline Mochella's second note. This time, they didn't ignore it. A team of officers was sent to the Basson property, where they began to dig up the chicken coop. The chickens were no doubt relieved to have law enforcement involved. Like, they're like... But they didn't understand chicken talk, did they? No, they were just like, oh, man, these chickens, they're really intense. When the cops arrived, Basson hid in his bedroom like a frightened child. His brother, Johan, told him, They're digging up the fowl house, Pierre. It was probably exactly how he said it. Wow, the Australian accent, I like mm-hmm. that. You're digging up the fowl house, Pierre. Johan said that this news made all the colour drain from his brother's face as he pretty much shat himself. 
he no. was really freaked. He knew he was busted. <laughs> he no. should know. And he, he actually went, it was Lou. The police will find the body if they dig deep enough. I'll be arrested. They'll arrest me. The detectives will find Schaefer's body and they'll bring Lou and me into it. We did it together. So, you know, he really held his mud when he was cornered. Yeah. Shortly afterwards, his mother went into his room to see Basson. He kissed her and said, I'm going to get dressed for the police. I have done no wrong. It was Toby's show. Less than a minute he after she left. probably kissed her on the mouth too. Oh, I probably just like tried to lick her butt and she was like, oh, for God's sake, Pierre. Yeah, it sounds Not like now. the kind of relationship he would have with his mother. Oh, the kind of relationship he probably wanted with his mother. Yeah. Less than a minute after she left his room, Basson's mother heard a gunshot ring out. He'd put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger, committing suicide. What a coward. Oh, yeah. He doesn't want to hear people's accusations or truths. Like, everything's in his control up to the end of his life. This is the kind of person this guy is. On the front page of that evening's edition of the Argus was the headline, Flats Mystery Solved. And an article ran with it describing the events after the police had begun to dig up the chicken coop. A strong smell gave the indication that developments were at hand. Eventually, Schaefer's body was found. It was immersed in quicklime in an advanced stage of decomposition, but was easily recognisable. Surrounded by coconuts. Yes. Besson's accomplice, Toby Lau, was tried for murder, but there was insufficient evidence against him and he was acquitted. Besson's mother was also arrested, remanded in jail for a week, and then released because... Well, it actually seems that she didn't really know what was happening. They thought they were accessories after the fact, but they actually weren't. You know. Well, I mean, Toby was completely involved in Wilhelm's murder. But yeah, they, he was. they didn't have any evidence to, to link yeah, that right. apart from, well, the family knew and they didn't necessarily say so. So all of the insurance fraud murders, that came out afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah they did. Obviously. Yeah. You know what? The more I study true crime, the more hesitant I am to get life insurance because it's really... It's a very common reason for someone to kill you. Well, the more I think that I should get insurance, uh, life insurance on all my family and loved ones. <laughs> Would you like a strawberry milkshake? Are you thirsty? I am. <laughs> so, yeah, mm. that is um, the first recorded incidence of South Africa having a serial killer. But, you know, I'm sure there were many. It's not like this stuff was invented in the 1900s. Well, yeah, in any country there's always serial killers really, isn't there? Hey, so Barney, what time is it? Well, let me just play this little song. It might remind you of what time it is. Oh, okay. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your... Chlamydia? No. Oh, okay. Sorry. No I'm just on, the, on a very different page here, aren't to I? To give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. A picture of your toenail that resembles Ted Bundy. So, Tara, are you itchy? Well, I mean... You can record your voice. <laughs> just do it on your phone. We'll play it. Or write it. We'll read it out. We've got one here from Lauren. Well, thank you, Lauren. Who wrote, My current true crime favourite book right now is Life Means Life by Nick Appleyard. It's a compilation about 36 men and one woman sent to prison for a sentence of life meaning life in the United Kingdom. 
Some of the murders featured in this book is human rodent neo-Nazi wannabe fuckface Ian Brady. <laughs> well put. A man who desperately deserved a toothbrush shiving in the kidney if there ever was one. And a supposed real-life Hannibal Lecter, Robert Maudsley. We all know that story mm -hmm. very well. The one thing that might put off some true crime fans is that the victims are glossed over, but I really appreciate it's made apparent how vile the author thinks these monsters are as some books seem to be too supportive or sympathetic to the killers. As I'm from the United States, I had to buy this book from UK Amazon. I wasn't able to find it anywhere else that shipped out of the country, so it might be somewhat difficult for Australians and people from other countries yeah. to purchase. Oh, unless you've got probably like a Kindle or a Kobo. Yeah, yeah. Way we do a lot of e-books, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. I'm a Kindle girl. Yeah. Anyway, I dearly love your filthy mouths <laughs> and podcast and hope you keep shitting in buckets for long into the future. <laughs> you two bringing attention to the lizards in the printer plight will be reflected in biology textbooks for years to come. Oh, poor textbooks. <laughs> Stay safe from drop bears. Well, that's very nice. Thank uh, you, Lauren. Thank you so much. And drop bears wouldn't attack us because they generally just attack tourists. And listeners out there, if you want to review some true crime for us, send it in. Yeah, tell us your favourite true crime stuff because we're massive true crime nerds mm. and we want more things to read and watch and look at. And we at. also want you to be part of the conversation. We want you to be part of our podcast. That's right. Fam Bam. Well, that was a hell of a story, Tara. Yeah, don't take out life insurance unless you really trust the person. Yeah. And even then, it's going to make them want to kill you, so don't do it. Don't do it? Do it secretly. Covert life insurance. I've you got heaps of policies out on you. <gasps> I shouldn't have said that. Really? No, I'm way too lazy for the paperwork, dude. Yeah, and you have to pay for that too. <laughs> I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, so I am dying to hear your murder story. Well, I have a corker for you. Bring it. It's uh, got a few cock punches. It's, oh. it's, it's not pleasant. Really? You're telling an unpleasant story on a mm. murder podcast? This I don't think that's allowed. Yeah, there's a lot of people that come off on the... Not very well on this. Okay. Well, I'm going to take some deep breaths and hug Murder Bear very tight. And do it. Good. Let's do it. All right. Dennis Wayne Bagwell was born in Denver on December 27, 1963 and grew up on the Rio Grande Valley and the Dallas area. Heavy set with piggy little eyes. <laughs> he was a former meat salesman. Oh, a meat salesman. Would you like to buy some meat? It's very tasty. Well, he wasn't Russian, but I did appreciate that. <laughs> Who developed a raging cocaine habit, which did not do wonders for his already ragey and pissy personality. Ah, oh, that's a shame, because cocaine normally makes most people really, like, chill and eloquent and... Supportive of others. Oh, Dennis gets better. <laughs> oh, Dennis no. gets better. Unemployed, 32-year-old Dennis lived with his girlfriend, Victoria Walford, in Wilson County, Texas, in a small trailer on property owned by his mother, Leona McBee, 
and her husband, Ronald Boone. McBee and Boone also lived on the property in a mobile home, which they shared with his granddaughter, Tassie Boone, and McBee's niece, Libby Best, and her four-year-old daughter, Reba Best. Oh, Dennis the Menace is around children? Not good. Oh, yeah, I can't see how this could go bad. In September 1995, McBee, tired of her son's aggressive and unruly behaviour and the way it impacted on her household, asked Dennis and his girlfriend to move off her property. Good move. Dennis's mother also felt uncomfortable about the way he looked at 14-year-old Tassie. Oh, no. They moved in with some friends in San Antonio, some 35 miles away. The trailer they had been living in remained on his mother's property. Apparently pissed off, Dennis expressed frustration to another family member that his mother had not paid him for his trailer. Well, I mean, is he paying rent for putting his trailer on her property? Because well, that's another no. way of looking at it, exactly. Dennis. Exactly. Dennis said he could kill his mother and it would never bother him. Oh, I'm starting to get a feeling about how shit's going to go down. And I don't like it. About two weeks later, on September 20, Dennis and Victoria smoked some crack cocaine and drove to his mother's home hoping to borrow some money so they could get some more drugs. Victoria, complaining of a headache, went into their old trailer for a bit of a lie down. A short time later, an enraged Dennis stomped back in and complained that his mother would only give him $20. Oh, damn, when I asked my mum for crack money, she's like, here, sweetie, let me make it rain. No, it's <laughs> no, just not a thing no. that's ever happened or will ever happen. <laughs> Dennis then went back to the mobile home while Victoria stood outside the trailer. Through the window, Victoria saw Dennis punch his mother. Oh, then she heard screams and two popping noises. She heard Tassie Boone yell, no, no, and heard Reva Best scream. Everything was quiet for a while, then Victoria heard Dennis's mother yell at her dogs and then cry out. As Victoria moved closer to see what was happening, through the window she saw Dennis bludgeon his mother with a long-handled gun. Happy Mother's Day? <sighs> oh, no, not. No, oh, damn. Dennison calmly went to the cupboard and grabbed some towels. He moistened them with water and wiped off a hammer. As he exited the mobile home, he told Victoria that he was going back inside to wipe off fingerprints he might have left in the house. He said that he wanted to make the crime look like a home invasion or a robbery gone wrong. The grisly scene was discovered by a horrified Ronald Boone who came home from work. Oh, that's that's his family. Yeah, he immediately called police. So, Tara, this is what happened and it was it's horrible. Okay. Dennis's mother, Leona McBee, 47, had been beaten and strangled and her neck was broken. Libby Best, 24, had been shot twice in the head. Tassie Boone, 14, had been beaten, strangled and sexually assaulted. So his mum was right to worry about how he looked. Oh, God. Her neck was also broken. Reba Best, aged only four, had been beaten and her small skull smashed in with a hammer. What was the point to all of this? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, what a waste of life. Hmm. Rage monster levels of violence were not a new thing to Dennis Bagwell. So he's got form? He certainly does. In 1981, he had robbed and slit the throat of an illegal immigrant. He began serving an 18-year sentence for attempted murder in late 1982, but was paroled in 1989. Oh, that's only seven years. Yeah, it's not long, is it? I don't feel that it's long, but who am I to question? And he didn't behave himself, too. He just got let out. All right, But more on that later. In September 1992, he was returned to prison on a parole violation. 
who was paroled again in January 1993. At the time, the state of Texas was forced to meet strict prison population caps. Oh, that's why he got out so easily. Dennis Bagwell was still on parole when he murdered his mother and relatives. Although Dennis had done an extensive job cleaning the crime scene, he was linked to the horrendous events by a bloody shoe print found underneath Tassie Boone's battered body. Also, after a brief interview with police, Victoria Woolford, not wanting any more to do with cruel and brutal Dennis, led police to various locations along the getaway route where Dennis had discarded incriminating evidence. Police officers recovered numerous items taken from his mother's residence, including a pair of tennis shoes and a pair of jorts. No way would a jort-wearing man do something like this. Was it jorts or did you make that uh, up? Oh, no, I read that wrong. Shorts. Yeah, okay, makes more sense. Makes more sense. An expert witness later testified that one of the tennis shoes matched a bloody shoe print found at the crime scene, the one under the body of Tassie. And other witnesses testified that those tennis shoes belonged to Dennis. It is not known if Dennis played tennis, but it does not seem likely. Oh, he wouldn't have the patience to wait for the ball. No, he'd be too angry. Oh, yeah, he'd want to, like, kill it violently. A firearms expert testified that the bullet fragments removed from Libby's cranium matched the shattered rifle the law enforcement officers recovered. Dennis Bagwell denied any involvement in the crime. His lawyers implicated Tassie's mother as the killer, but it was established that she was in California at the time of the murders. She's also probably a bit unlikely to sexually assault her daughter, maybe? Yeah. Generally speaking. Hmm. Also, if this quadruple murder isn't enough, two weeks before this vile family shit show, Dennis kicked George Barry, 63, to death in a bar called Jim's Place. No for, way! During the course of a robbery. Oh, shit! There's okay. more. Elderly George Barry worked there as a janitor shelf stacker and didn't stand a chance. Later, Victoria Walford, Dennis's girlfriend, testified in court that on the evening of this murder, she and Dennis met Donnie Helm, the owner of Jim's Place, at a rest stop on Highway 123. There, Dennis sold Helm a television, stereo and VCR, all which belonged to a local rent-to-own store. Helm oh. paid $200 for the equipment. That's not how rent-to-own works. No, you can't sell the shit. Well, I mean, ideally not. Yeah, I'm guessing he stole it from someone else. Yeah, let's not let's not concentrate on the theft. Let's no. concentrate on the murder. Okay, but it is a, a thing. I, I, I'm glad you brought it up. Dennis and Victoria took the money from this sale and went to the home of a local drug dealer. And guess what they bought there? Crack. Some rock cocaine for $150. The pair took the cocaine to the trailer they shared, where they smoked it, and then Victoria prepared for bed. Really? Is that how crack works? Yeah. Okay, um, I thought it made you, like, hyper and shit. Well, maybe she was coming down from other stuff. Who knows? Maybe. But Dennis wanted to get high and demanded to go out for more drugs, this time some marijuana. Maybe they wanted to come down. Okay, well, it has been known to help. I've read books about such things. Yes, I'm sure you have. Mm -hmm. Long books. Long books. Victoria dressed and they drove to Jim's place. Dennis drove around the bar a couple of times, telling Victoria he was there looking for an employee, Robin Whitman, who Dennis thought could sell him some weed. Okay. Hmm. It's, it's a good plan. It's solid. Dennis <laughs> had been to Jim's place several times, had sold or tried to sell items to employees there, and knew all the employees by name. Hey, Macca. Oh, hi, Dennis. Oh, God, guys, Dennis is here. Run! Yeah, that's right. When Dennis didn't see Whitman, he stopped the car and went into the bar. He came back shortly after and asked Victoria for a quarter. He had not found Robin and wanted to call his home. 
At that point, he told Victoria that he planned to rob and kill George Barry, who was in the restaurant stocking beer for the next day. I think Victoria could have said, no, nah, don't do that. That's a shit idea. She's kind of like, How? that's not going to help us get our weed any faster. Let's just go to the weed guy's house. It was also Barry's job to make the night deposit for the bar. Bingo. Yeah. Dennis returned to the bar and Victoria remained in the car. She testified that while Dennis was in the bar, she could hear pounding and thumping noises. Does she just hang outside while Dennis, like, kills people regularly? Is this, like, part of their relationship at this point? Well, Dennis returned 20 minutes later with three money bags and an injured finger. Oh, really? Did he get a boo-boo on his pinky? On his digit. They then headed for their drug dealer, where they purchased more rock cocaine. What happened to the weed? Well, they've got some money now. Yeah, these people need to calm down. On the drive to their trailer, Dennis told Victoria that he had killed Barry by smashing his throat with his foot. Oh, God. It's like killing people to Dennis is is nothing. Victoria later testified that Dennis was wearing black heavy boots on the night of the murder. Later, an expert on fingerprints testified that one of Dennis's fingerprints on one of his palm prints was found on the file cabinet near Barry's body where the deposit money was kept. A San Antonio police officer testified to finding one cloth bank bag with the words first commercial on it in the room Victoria and Dennis shared in San Antonio. Bar employees said that the bag was similar to those used by Jim's place. Damning evidence. Finally, several witnesses testified that Dennis had given inconsistent stories about how he had hurt his hand, saying at times that he had hit a black man, that he had hit a black man and robbed him, or that he'd smashed his hand down on the roof of a car. What, a car, like, that a black man was driving? Because that seems to be, like, the one consistent thing in his stories. Well, Dennis Bagwell denied any knowledge of this crime, too. Yeah, well, that's a surprise, isn't it? On September 20, 1995, Dennis was indicted by a Wilson County grand jury for the murder in the deaths of his mother, Leonie McBee, Libby Best, Reby Best, and Tassie Boone. Good. Yay. During his trial, a sheriff's deputy testified that anger monkey Dennis had made numerous threats against law enforcement personnel prior to his trial. He yelled at police, I'll take one of you out before we hit the floor. Well, he might have been. Like, I don't want to defend Dennis, but maybe he was talking about dancing in this case. So he's going to take him to a restaurant for dinner mm. and then they'll go dancing. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, that doesn't sound like Dennis. I'll take you out. I'll curb Before stomp we hit your, the floor. Yeah, no, I'll curb stomp your face and yeah. then I'll just bike some cracks. It's more probably like just the inflection that he was doing on that was really threatening, I think. Well, yeah. Yeah. It usually is. Well, Tara, one of the defense's experts testified that cocaine ingestion can raise a person's energy level, increase aggressiveness, lead to manic episodes involving hyperactivity and unclear thought and cause psychotic, paranoid behaviour. So none of that says it's a good thing to do before you go nap-naps? No. Okay, good. Glad to know a specialist is in my corner here. Well, other witnesses testified to Dennis's depressed and upset demeanour in the days following the murders. I'm so sad. I just killed my entire family. Yeah, my mum's dead now. Who's going to lend me drug money? The defence, in their effort to suggest that Monica Boone Tassie Boone's mother committed the crime, offered evidence to show that Monica and Tassie had a difficult relationship. Oh, there's difficult, and then there's, I don't know, like, 
sexual assault and murder. Well, Different they, things. Well, they said that Monica physically abused Tassie and on the night of the murders, a woman who bore a resemblance to Monica appeared at a bar near the crime scene, intoxicated and mumbling about having lost her hammer. I just can't find my hammer anywhere. Uh, It shouldn't be funny, but it is. Um, On rebuttal, the state called Monica Boone to establish that she had been in California at the time of the murders. Well, that's a long way from Texas. It really is. The state also presented testimony to establish that law enforcement officers had identified the woman at the bar, determined that she was not Monica Boone, and had ruled the woman out as a suspect. And Tara, this is good. They Mm -hmm. also helped her find her hammer. Oh, that's a relief. The court heard that Dennis had a history of parole violations, Mm. but he still got parole. Uh, (laughs) You're really shit at parole. Let's give you some more. He also had a lengthy history of threats of violence, disciplinary violations, and refusal to accept psychiatric treatment while in prison. In fact, he had to wear leg restraints during his trial because of the numerous threats he had made to police. I will take you dancing and it'll be awesome. Yeah, no, wrong... I don't know. You know, we're a comedy podcast, but it does feel bad making jokes about someone this evil. He really is. Well, he's done some evil things. Oh. I don't. I, I don't like calling people evil, Tara. I think. No, I me either. It's, it's actually it's the choices that you make. It's people. Yeah. People can do evil things, but it doesn't make them evil. They still have. Even people that have done evil things, they have people that love them and they have lives. They don't consider themselves bad guys. Oh, my God. The people who do the most evil things never do. They don't have any empathy. They're not self-aware. And they don't see it as a big deal because they feel that they're entitled to make this impact on the world, no matter how negative it is is for others. Everyone thinks they're a good guy. Ah, okay. You know what? You're probably true, except the people that don't. And there are a lot of us out there, and we're all like, I'm the worst, I'm the worst, I'm the worst. They're probably the good people, though. A pathologist testified that the weapons used to beat the victims included a claw hammer, the neck of a guitar... A spring from an exercise machine and a broken twenty-two caliber rifle. So he was just grabbing whatever his horrible, chunky man hands could carry in their rage field. Uh, Dennis exploded. He just went crazy. He mm. went cray-cray. Yeah, but, you know, again, like, a lot of people use crack. A lot of people have some issues they could use some psychiatric care for, and not everyone does this. Well, I've seen people get really aggressive and punchy when, when they get a bit drunk. But normally they're fine. I don't. Yeah. I, look, I'm not saying that this There's is an excuse. There's a lot of triggers for people There's in a lot different of triggers ways. For people. But most people, they don't do this. No. And thank goodness for that. Shout out to all the people who don't kill anyone. I love yeah. you. Yeah, I love you too. Yeah. Uh, at least one person had been stopped. Mm. One was shot twice in the head. Two of the victims were strangled so violently that their necks were broken. And a 14-year-old girl was sexually abused. And a four-year-old girl killed with a claw hammer. I mean, that's just... It all is. Uh, I I don't have the words. There aren't. Which is a bummer because I'm doing a podcast. Yeah, I know. Let's do something more visual next time so that they can just watch (laughs) our faces fall. Prosecutors described Dennis at his trial as a natural-born killer. Well, I got a word I could use for him. Yeah, and not in a cool Woody Harrelson way. Oh, no, no. No, Juliet fucking Lewis this this one nut. So you remember Victoria, his girlfriend? Yeah, oh, some of the shit she saw, huh? Well, she wanted to get off the rage bus, so she threw him under it and testified that Dennis had said, God put me here to kill some people. 
Oh, great. Delusions of grandeur. It was the only thing missing, wasn't it? Here's some good news. After deliberating for three hours, a jury found Dennis Bagwell guilty of murder. Good. This is what he had to say. Oh, I'm innocent. You guys are fucked. Actually, are you clairvoyant? Yeah, pretty much. These guys always roll like this. They're fixing to execute an innocent man, Dennis whined. We also said that he never went to his mother's house and didn't know who committed the murders. Hear that? He's wanking off in front of us. <laughs> he also complained that Victoria Walford was coerced into testifying against him. Though despite his claim of innocence, Dennis said that he hoped that his execution would hurry up and go through. You and me both, Dennis, we're finally on the same page. If they offered me a life sentence, I wouldn't take it. I'm not walking through these hallways as a 90-year-old for something I didn't do, he said. I'm ready to go. I'm tired of living in a cage like an animal. That's kind of where he belongs. Well, I'm tired of not being dead and sexually abused and beaten with a claw hammer. Yeah, I'm tired of him not being those things also. Anti-death penalty campaigners said that Dennis Bagwell's case involved concerning issues which are common in capital punishment. There are some issues with that, yeah. Most notably, there is a reason to believe his attorney at trial provided him with ineffective assistance. He didn't have a lot to work with, though, did he? Well, he didn't, but he would have got, uh, what do they call it? Um, Food stamps? Legal aid. Oh, right. Yeah. He wouldn't have have been able to throw money at this. Well, no, he would have smoked it all. His attorney failed to interview the star's star witness, Victoria Walford, who was with Dennis at the time of the crimes prior to his trial. His attorney also failed to adequately investigate and present mitigating evidence such as Dennis's traumatic childhood to the jury. This omission denied the jury the opportunity to hear that Dennis was often left unsupervised as a child and was beaten by his alcoholic stepfather. Dennis reportedly was made to sleep in the same room as his mother when she engaged in sexual activity. Well, it's not ideal. No, that can fuck you up. Uh, Yeah, for sure, but a lot of people go through it. They don't kill people, that's true. His stepfather frequently forced Dennis and his sister to stare at the blank television screen for hours at a time. Oh, well, you didn't tell me something this terrible was involved. Well, better that than The Bachelor, I guess. <laughs> Man, any day. When this issue was raised on appeal, a U.S. District Court responded to the trial attorney's failure to find and present this evidence by saying that the state does not require one's counsel to exercise clairvoyance. <laughs> well, someone was feeling like he had his witty pants on in court that day, wasn't he? Look, I've got to tell you, I think the evidence was there for this guy to be found guilty, but... Maybe his lawyer wasn't the best. Yeah. Yeah, there's still an overwhelming amount of uh, evidence. I don't know. If you kill five people, it's... Also, okay, so let's go with his home invasion theory. Like, who would possibly have the motive? It's obviously personal, Uh, you know. There was physical evidence there. They found physical evidence, mm. you know, on the uh, that he dumped out of the car that linked him to the scene. Yeah. It's, it, look, it's all there. So during the penalty phase of uh, Dennis's trial, a jury was not specifically informed that a single juror could prevent the death sentence. See, they're not given alternatives, jurors, that they think that they can only find guilty and he gets sentenced to death. Or? Well, they could say, we want him never to be out. Okay. Dennis was shackled and restrained during his trial, a practice which courts have taken into account when reversing sentences, 
because of its prejudicial effect on the jury's perception of the defendant. Yeah, but if he keeps threatening the people who are taking him to court, the law enforcement officers, what choice do they have? He was have? very aggressive, and that's not going to look very good for him, is it? No. But that's him, though. By the way, what's the bet they didn't put him on the stand? Because there's no way they would. Oh, no, they didn't no. put him on the stand. Oh, they would have just been like, don't no even look way. at the stand, Dennis. They also argued that Dennis's lover, Victoria, as a prosecution start witness, testified after being promised immunity by the state. That's pretty standard. Yeah. And if she didn't have the evidence to back it up, they wouldn't have given her the well, deal. She, well, you know, she didn't participate in any of the murders, but mm. she was accessory after the fact. Yeah, uh, I'm not super happy with the way she's um, dealt with this. Especially with the Barry guy in the bar. Yeah. The elderly janitor shelf stacker mm. guy. Yeah. On November 7, 1996, the court sentenced Dennis to death. I'm okay with that. All of his subsequent appeals in state and federal courts were denied. Oh. The following year, Dennis was convicted of killing George Barry. That's in 1997. Okay, so they got him for that too. Because, you know, sometimes they don't bother once they've got him for something else. Yeah. Dennis Bagwell said his earliest stint in prison made him a convenient target when Wilson County authorities were looking to find who was responsible for the murders. When they found out I had a record for attempted murder, they started piling up the evidence to back up their claim, Dennis said. He also stated he was nowhere near the murder scene and last saw his mother about three days before. Now, here's a good uh, fun fact for you, Tara. Mm -hmm. Dennis's collection of tattoos include one on his left arm that spelled out in big letters, M-O-M. Did it have an addendum? Did it have an addendum under it? Mom, is a bitch because she'll only give me 20 bucks for drugs. Yeah, Mom, I love her, but she doesn't give me enough money for drugs. Yeah, right. Okay, good tattoo. In an interview a couple of days before he was strapped to a gurney, Dennis said he was grateful for the 11th hour efforts from the anti-death penalty campaigners, but would welcome death. I'm at peace with it, he said. What a better way to go than being put to sleep rather than suffering the rest of your life. I do like sleep. Dennis's final meal was beef steak, medium rare with A1 sauce, three fried chicken breasts, three fried chicken thighs, barbecue ribs, a large order of French fries with ketchup, a large order of onion rings, a pound of fried bacon, a dozen scrambled eggs with onions, fried taters with onions, sliced tomatoes, a salad with ranch dressing. Well, I'm glad you got a salad in there. Yeah, but ranch dressing makes it like deep fried, essentially. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Two hamburgers with everything. Peach pie cobbler, which I don't know what it is. It's a peach pie oh, made by a cobbler to be in the shape of a shoe. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> Milk and coffee and iced tea. Okay. The thing that surprises me about this is that he actually lived through that meal and was able to be you know, executed. Because I feel like if you ate all that, you might just, like, go into a food coma and die. I've seen photos of him just, the like, hours before this mm -hmm. happened, and he looked pretty happy, and he had people well, around him that he, loved him. He and did have a lot of awesome food. There's a lot of grey area there. I know he killed, like, four or five people, but I don't know. There's people around him that seemed to love him, and he seemed happy. And Anyway, Dennis did not acknowledge the four relatives of his victims there to witness his death. He didn't look at them. But he thanked a spiritual advice for being on hand. Thank you so much, Satan. I've enjoyed your company. I love you all. All right, Warden. I'm ready. Were his last words. Okay. He gasped, snorted, 
gurgled and probably farted (laughs) as a lethal dose was administered and he was pronounced dead at 6.19pm February 17th, 2005, 19 years after the murders. Dennis Bagwell died never having admitted guilt. He probably didn't feel guilty either. He was the 339th person executed in Texas since the state resumed the death penalty in 1982, six years after the US Supreme Court lifted a national ban on capital punishment. I'm just glad it's all over with, said Monica Byrne, Tassie Byrne's mother. Everything that's been touched by this madman can rest in peace. I hope so. I'm hoping and praying this is the end of a chapter in my life, said Gregory Knowles, whose daughter Libby was also killed. There's no joy in watching someone die. We could be evil and wish that someone could be thrown feet first into a wood chipper, but that wouldn't change things and bring honour to those who have passed away at the hand of someone like this. Wilson County Sheriff Joe Tackett said, I think the death penalty for someone like him is the only way. He deserves what he gets. Well, you don't want him out there amongst all the people, right? Yeah. I'm Sorry, I don't agree with the death penalty, but this one's a tough one. Um, he should never be free, that's for sure. I actually think the wood chipper thing's a pretty good idea in this case. <laughs> wow, that's an extreme view, but yes. Oh, yeah. damn. Well, I don't miss him. Do you? No, I don't. Okay. Yeah. Hell of a story. Damn, man. There was some dick punches in there. I feel like I need cheering up. Well, uh, there is this thing called Aussie As. I don't know what it is. What is it? <laughs> oh, my God. One day you'll listen when I say this. Aussie as a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Actually, I want you to be part of this because oh, really? there's a lawyer in here who has some um, some choice lines. So I'm going to give you a copy and I've, I've highlighted. Okay. Yeah, Thank can you. you do that for me? Sure. Excellent. All righty. Should I launch? Yes. A man dubbed Darwin's world record masturbator, Gary Thomas Chisholm, probably nicknamed Gazza, was in court again on March 29th this year for publicly choking the chicken. He does that all the time. Oh, does he? <laughs> yeah. At court, the chronic meat beater pleaded guilty to two indecent exposure charges. 45-year-old Gaza pleaded guilty to jerking the gherkin in front of three bystanders at Berry Springs in November last year and later, while out on bail, spanking the monkey at the feet of a particularly attractive naked sunbaker at Casherina Nudist Beach. His lawyer, Peter Malley, said, He has got to stop masturbating. He is now seeking help. <laughs> Mally confirmed that Gaza buffed his banana between seven to ten times a day, often going into public toilets to do the deed. He says he's extremely good at masturbating. He could do it extremely quickly. (laughs) He basically has almost the world record in masturbating. That's what I heard. Mally said that Gaza recognised he had a problem and had been seeing a doctor in recent months. He has now come to grips with perhaps taking some kind of blocker to stop him doing it. The court heard Gaza toss the turkey vigorously while thrusting his hips in front of three bystanders at Berry Springs Nature Reserve on November 24th last year. How was my lawyer voice? Was that, that all right? That was good. Oh, cool. 
The bystanders followed Gazza to the car park and took photos of him driving off in his black Holden wank wagon. <laughs> he later told police, Oh, I-, I thought I was alone. Yeah. No. Gazza breached his bail, which banned him from beaches and parks. Well, within, well good. Yeah, I know, particularly nudist beaches and nudist parks. Within two weeks, when on December 6th, he included a naked, sleeping female sunbather at Casarina Nudist Beach in the pounding of his flounder. Ew. The court was told the sunbaker woke up upon hearing a fast, wet, slippery kind of sound. Oh, that's the worst kind of sound. And smashed Gazza with a stick after he said, Oh, sorry, I was just putting on some lotion. Oh, dude, not while I'm wearing headphones. Sorry. Judge Chanya Fong Lim gave Gazza a suspended sentence and said, Your behaviour on both of these occasions is appalling. You may say you are embarrassed about having to come to court, but can you imagine the embarrassment that both these ladies must have felt? Well, yeah, that's you don't feel safe when someone's doing that. Too. I that's don't feel safe sleeping naked on a nudist beach if someone's going to jerk off over me. That's mm. for fucking not, sure. Not cool, Gaza. Not cool at all. Gaza was sentenced to a total of five weeks and two days in jail, suspended immediately. Yeah, that's a pity. So, hey, Barney. What's the bet that he's actually pumping the python right now? Oh, maybe he just finished. Oh, no, he's just started no, again. No, he's just started again. And you know what? People listening aren't right here right now, but Gazza's probably pounding off right now while they're listening oh, also. Oh, Gazza. Just, Gazza. You know, maybe do knitting or something. Well, what about there was that guy in Sons of Anarchy and the bikies cut his fingers off because he wouldn't stop masturbating. I'm oh, not saying that's, that's right. a good idea, but Gazza, like, you no, know. You might calm, need it. Calm your shit, mate. Yeah. So that was a lot about man wanking. I know that you have a few euphemisms for the lady wank. Would you like to share them with uh, our listeners? I do, I do have a couple of favourites, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, double clicking the mouse. Double clicking the mouse is my favourite. Uh, scrolling through a long word document. <laughs> you know when you've got that little wheel on your mouse and mm-hmm. you're just going that? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. And my, my personal favourite, Tara, is mm. sailing the deep blue sea. I don't even get that one. I, I mean... Ju- I just think it's pretty. Well, it's 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 poignant and landscapey. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks for that. That's all right. <laughs> hey, uh, I think we've got to the end of our episode. I believe that might be true. So thanks for listening, and thanks to our patrons. And if you would like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. So I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. I spent a lot of work uh, doing that website. Oh, you know what I think to myself? (laughs) No goes there, though. At least a few times a week, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that my podcasting partner is a graphic designer. (laughs) It's freaking helpful, i got to (laughs) say. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Oh, damn straight. Wow. Hey, so the awards were fun. They really were. It was were. so cool to hang out with our pod brothers, Cambo, obviously, and Felon. Oh, God. I really felt like a little fish in a big pond. So many times. Oh, it's the only time that we've actually been around people from our industry, apart yeah. from our mates. That's right. And they're all so much But that's no, fine. Really? Yeah. How are they? <laughs>
Well, they were. There was a lot of big ones. Oh, there was some big ones, yeah. yeah it yeah. was just really cool to meet some other Australian podcasters. And we were really happy. We were really happy to be nominated. Yeah. We knew we were outside. They had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hey, Tara, you know how Dexter, my son, was on an episode a couple of weeks ago? Yes. Well, I think we should get my other son on, Mo, because he's got some sweet comedy chops. Mo has always been a bit of a comedic genius. We were driving past a golf course the other day, and he said, I play golf there. And I've never heard of this. No, I didn't know he played golf. Well, he's been playing it for school. Oh, okay. He, he doesn't tell me shit. And, uh, <laughs> no, why would and he? I said, he's a teenager. Uh, so golf, you've been playing golf. Like, do you like it? And he said, yeah, yeah, I really like it. And uh, are you any good at it? And he went, actually, I'm the best in my class. Oh, wow. And I said, what's your handicap? And he said, my family. <laughs> and I said, Mo. And he went, oh, sorry, my dad. He's like a young Rodney Dangerfield. I know. <laughs> That's some good wit there. It really is. Okay, we got to get Mo on. Yeah, we do. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.